WBZ original. I had a Sister Margaret of the Infant Jesus, and you had to call her that every time. What? Sister Margaret of the Infant Jesus. You had to use the whole name. So couldn't short walk in the classroom, the entire class had to rise and say, Good morning, Sister Margaret of the Infant Jesus. <laughs> wow. <laughs> it took up quite a lot of time. And if you didn't, you'd get wrapped <laughs> on your fingers. Couldn't you just use the acronym, say good morning, smidge? <laughs> she would not respond well to that. <laughs> Happy New Year, everybody, and welcome to 2019. Can't believe it's the last year of the decade. Last old acquaintance. uh. (laughs) One of my most hated songs. (laughs) Don't you hate that tune? Is that German? Old Anxiety? Scottish, I believe. Scottish? Oh, really? Isn't it a Scottish? Well, if it isn't Scottish, it's a Scottish, yes. Yes. Uh, so we're going to pass beyond the old Lang Zines and say Happy New Year. And uh, with all kinds of optimism for 2019, hmm. this is episode one of season three of Studio BZ. I'm Paula Evans. I am Leah Martin. And John Keller. Glad to be with you. Happy yeah. New Year, everyone. On this week's show, my conversation with Dan Kennedy. You see his media commentary online on the uh, WGBH-TV program Beat the Press, where he's a regular panelist, and he is a journalism professor at Northeastern University who has a lot to say about who's up, who's down, what's going to be happening in both national and local news media in the coming year. Paula and I have a very interesting discussion with a Harvard professor, Ronald Ferguson, who has a new book out called The Formula, Unlocking the Secrets to Raising Highly Successful Children. And he gives us some of the roles that parents want to try to uh, show to their children how to be a successful parent and raise successful children. That book is going to be a bestseller. Oh, when just it comes from the title out, alone. As soon as you tell parents there's a formula. And then, of course, Elizabeth Warren appears to be running for president, is a certain former Massachusetts governor as well. It can't be a presidential race without at least two candidates <laughs> at the Massachusetts Times. To right? We're going to dig into the numbers there. Always. And then at the end of the podcast, wait for it, because we're going to have a little special surprise. Predictions for 2019 from 35 years ago. We won't tell you from whom. Wait till the end of the broadcast, and I'm going to run them by John and Paul and see how well they think this person did with their predictions. No way they called the Red Sox winning <laughs> four right. titles. No. no way. No we'll see. Dishonesty is Donald Trump's hallmark. He claimed that he had spoken clearly and boldly against going into Iraq. Wrong. He spoke in favor of invading Iraq. He said he saw thousands of Muslims in New Jersey celebrating 9-11. Wrong. He saw no such thing. He imagined it. He's not of the temperament of the kind of stable, thoughtful person we need as leader. His imagination must not be married to real power. That's uh, former Massachusetts Governor Mitt Romney in March of 2016 Hmm. denouncing then-candidate Donald Trump, begging his fellow Republicans to find a way to stop him from getting the nomination. Well, you know what happened since then. Uh, Trump did win the nomination. He humiliated Romney when Romney went to meet with him during the transition to discuss a possible cabinet position, and uh, uh, which apparently was just a construct designed to embarrass and humiliate Romney. Forced the chairwoman of the GOP to change her name. 
She was right. Rona Romney McDaniel. He said, drop the Romney if you want to be the GOP chairwoman, and she did it. And she tweeted this morning very directly at Mitt Romney. And now, of course, the latest development, uh, Senator-elect Mitt Romney, who on Thursday, January 3rd, will be sworn in as the uh, freshman senator from Utah, succeeding Orrin Hatch, uh, lobbed an op-ed article in the Washington Post the other day uh, saying that— Trump has not lived up to uh, the mantle of the presidency and really uh, about as harsh a barrage of criticism of Trump as we've seen from an establishment figure in the party in some time. So here we go. Uh, It's going to be Mitt versus Donald (laughs) once again. Which is interesting, Doug, because you just said, here we go. And that was Donald Trump's tweet immediately after reading the op-ed this morning, here we go with Mitt Romney. Uh, will he Will he be, is he a flake, meaning Jeff Flake? But he says um, that what really matters to President Trump the most at the end, I won big and he didn't. He should be happy for all Republicans, be a team player and win. Well, you know what? For once, maybe not for the first time, but it's kind of unusual. There's a lot of truth in a, a Trump tweet on a couple of levels. First of all, uh, his reference to outgoing Arizona Senator Jeff Flake is very telling and really cuts to the core of the issue with Romney coming in now. Flake, you'll recall, uh, although he was derided as wishy-washy about it by the real uh, never-Trump uh, uh, folks, uh, Flake was kind of a swing vote at times, hedging on whether or not he was going to support the Trump agenda. He was the one who forced the Judiciary Committee to hold up and let the FBI investigate Kavanaugh further. Uh, mm-hmm. Then uh, we ended up voting for him. Uh, right. And he ended but up voting he voted for him. He end. ended up voting for a lot of, of Trump initiatives, but was perceived as a critic. Well, there's a big difference between Jeff Flake and Mitt Romney. Flake was leaving his job. He was mm-hmm. not running for re-election. Of course, Trump takes credit for that. But um, And uh, in Arizona, Trump remained widely popular among Republicans and others. Uh, in Utah, Utah is arguably the most anti-Trump red state in the country. They gave 26% of their votes in their presidential primary two years ago to this guy, Evan McMullen, who was running as an anti-Trump Republican. Uh, and Romney's just coming into a six-year term, so he's not on his way out. He's not a lame duck. He doesn't have to worry about alienating his base. And in fact, I would argue, and I'm happy to do so at great length if you guys can stay away. <laughs> Wake, uh, that that's precisely the point that Mitt Romney is staking his claim to the mantle of potentially leading Trump challenger as we head into the Well, you sent us election. an email last night saying, effectively, you think this is Romney's opening argument for him as a primary challenger to Trump in 2020. Do you really think he's going to do that? Or do you think this is him just positioning himself as the guy who's going to be the new Jeff Flake or Bob Corker or John McCain of this Senate? You know, I I think we'll know sooner rather than later, Liam, because if President Trump can't turn around the current the current arc of his presidency, if the economy continues to sort of stumble, at least the stock market, Uh, if wages don't continue to rise for working class Republicans and others, Um, if things get dicey 
on foreign affairs. Uh, there's, a, 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 there's a lot of things that are going wrong right now for He's Donald Trump. And if it continues, not to mention the Mueller probe, sure. and if it continues... Uh, Mitt Romney will be just one of many who'll be getting ready to He's jump in. He's positioning himself in the event that there is an opportunity. I mean, look, I'm, I'm not saying he's faking it. This is clearly what he yeah, believes. See, I was going to say, I actually don't think he is faking no. it. No! Let's switch gears and talk about Elizabeth Warren. She has announced an exploratory committee for 2020. She is going to run for president. Uh, John, we've talked a lot about Elizabeth Warren on this podcast, her chances. We've known for a long time that she was leaning this way. Assess her chances at the outset here. Well, you know, it again, it gets back to this question of trying to figure out what will a preponderance of the voters in the primaries now, who are a narrow subset of, of, of the general electorate, what will they want? And how can you give them what they want and then give the general electorate what it wants and, and get over the hump? So, you know, first of all, clearly Warren is running off to Iowa this, this weekend. Mm-hmm. That's a big mistake. Her first stop should have been right here at Studio BZ. Oh, 100%. Please. Major, major gaffe to start her campaign. This the is announcement tonight. should have happened here. Forget cracking open a beer on Instagram Live. Uh, <laughs> she should of, have been. Yeah, I haven't looked at, at that yet. Studio what kind BZ. of beer was it? I don't know. I couldn't you know? see. I would think there was some thought put into mm. what kind of beer it was. We should say she did an Instagram yes. Live the night after yeah. she announced her exploratory she's committee. Popping a beer. One of the first things she did yeah. is crack open a beer. Mm-hmm. Obviously, she's Listen. <laughs> trying to make a certain yeah. impression. Alexandra beer, like o- a Jack Sabby yeah, right, or a, yeah, a, harpoon. a harpoon. Yeah, uh, Alexandra Ocasio Cortez <laughs> has used Instagram Live to great effect yeah. while cooking in her kitchen, right. answering questions. Uh, it remains to be seen if Elizabeth Warren. Now every Democratic nominee is going to insta live from their kitchen for the remainder of the campaign. That's right, it Jonathan. Was a Michelob Ultra. A oh, Michelob. No. Jonathan says Ultra. the beer was a Michelob Ultra. Well, that's Elizabeth not even Warren's. a beer. <laughs> that's like beer flavored water. Is that the Are one with the sixty-four me? calories or whatever? Yeah. It is? Now we know why she's how she stays so thin. <laughs> let's say yeah. uh, let's dive in a little bit into the numbers because I don't think that if a person looking at the numbers would feel that she has a terribly good chance at the outset here. I was just looking at a Suffolk poll that came out earlier, uh, came out in December, I should say, and it it measured how excited people were versus against the idea of her running. 27% of respondents were excited. 33% were against the idea. She had a net negative in that poll. Iowa Democrats were recently polled. This was specifically Democrats who planned to vote in the uh, caucuses in 2020. She dropped from 16% of Iowa Democrats supporting her to 9% from September to December, which is exactly when she released the results of her DNA test. She doesn't really like dealing with the press. I don't see where she found numbers there, whatever it might be, to make her think, oh, I have a really good shot at this. Well, she's she's a prodigious fundraiser. Yeah. Okay. One of the best in the party. Mm -hmm. All right. She already has some national name recognition. Yeah, she's one of the most well-known. It's not all positive, but it's better to have it than not have it. And, you know, let me remind you of the famous James Carville admonition. Mm-hmm. It's, the it's the economy, economy stupid. stupid. Only right. about the stupid because you went to Harvard, Liam. No one, <laughs> no one could, even if you didn't, no one could ever call you stupid. No. Okay? But um, look, she is betting 
that her economic analysis is correct, that what the Republicans did with the tax cut isn't was, resonating. was just, well, we know it isn't resonating so far, but that it was ultimately just a giveaway to corporate America. And they pocketed the proceeds. There have been some increases in wages, but certainly not along the lines of the stock market run-up, which we've now seen mm, yeah. uh, become deflated. And it hasn't I mean, kept pace with inflation. If we are entering, and I certainly hope this is not the case, but if we are entering a period of stagnant and declining markets, stagnant wages, uh, you know, uh, the deregulation of the Trump era resulting in all sorts of abuses and catastrophes, uh, then all of a sudden, Elizabeth Warren's life work, which is arguing that this is what the system is structured to enable, and we need to get up in there and blow it up and regulate it back into the realm of civilization or else we're all screwed, then all of a sudden that argument could start to really catch on. Well, it is really interesting because she and Donald Trump both say the system is rigged, but come at it from a completely opposite point of view. They're One both of the- highly skeptical of foreign trade agreements. Yes. There's a lot that uh, – She'll take a lot of the Bernie Sanders Yeah, I will say I texted a Democratic operative the day that Elizabeth Warren announced this exploratory committee and I said, do you think she really thinks she can win or do you think she just wants to use her platform to move the field to the left, right? In other words, she wants the other Democratic nominees that will emerge to kind of come with her and knowing that she probably doesn't have the support to win. And this Democratic operative who knows Elizabeth Warren very well said, no, she thinks she can win. Mm. Oh, yeah. Listen, one thing, you made a good point about how she's very disciplined. She doesn't lash out. She hasn't, uh, uh, you know, gone out of her way to antagonize uh, the Bernie bots or other elements of the party. Uh, What may not be widely known is that behind closed doors, she's a stone-cold killer in the political context. Uh, Remember uh, not so long ago, Deval Patrick was being talked up as a a likely candidate for president. Supposedly the Obama people were going to back him. And oh my gosh, this uh, inspirational, articulate guy. Uh, And then an article came out in the Huffington Post. Uh, all about Deval Patrick's entanglements with AmeriQuest, this mortgage vulture company back in the heyday of the mm-hmm. uh, of the mortgage uh, predatory mortgage scandals, and uh, how he was basically a handyman helping out uh, these these uh, scummy mortgage vultures. A devastating article written by a reporter known to have a lot of contacts with the Warren Organization. Mm. Now, I'm not <laughs> saying. <laughs> that there were any fingerprints. That grandmotherly Elizabeth Warren <laughs> would ever take a knife and disembowel a fellow Democrat quietly behind the scenes. I would never suggest no. that anything like that could happen. No, of course not. All I would say is Deval Patrick is no longer a candidate. Yes. Our city is truly the hub. The hub of the universe. The universe. So what will 2019 be like for the enemies of the people? Of course, I mean the news media, right? (laughs) The enemies of the people. Listen, it's been an interesting – 2018 was an interesting year for the media, both national and locally. Mm -hmm. Uh, The uh, devastation of the newspaper industry continues. 
Uh, we saw the Boston Herald get sold to hedge fund predators who set about systematically dismantling what was left of it. We saw the Boston Globe showing signs of life, but also struggling in other ways. Uh, nationally, we saw uh, Jeff Bezos and the Washington Post thriving, and also the New York Times, and uh, uh, record ratings for the cable news networks as well. So what does 2019 look like for the news media? I sat down just before the, hol- the new year with Dan Kennedy, professor of journalism at Northeastern University. You see him as a regular panelist on Beat the Press, the media discussion program at, uh, in public television here in Boston. And uh, we talked about uh, sort of the big news events of the past year and what to look for uh, in terms of both surviving and prospering for the news media in 2019. So, Professor Kennedy, let's start off by talking about what is clearly the number one most shocking, most controversial news story of the year, word that WEEI, which carries the Red Sox games, of course, is toying with the idea of dispensing with traditional baseball play-by-play and instead having a kind of an ongoing talk show style conversation during the game, which I'm, I'm prepared to say strikes me as the single worst idea in the history of mankind. What do you make of that? Well, you know, fortunately, I have the MLB app on my phone. And so if they really do go ahead with this, I can listen to the other team's broadcast, uh, which I will certainly do if this turns out to be uh, an ongoing talk show with a baseball game somewhere in the background. But it sounds like they've backed off from it. I certainly hope that's the case. Well, in that case, kudos to the folks at WEEI. So um, (laughs) we're we're half joking here, but that story does reflect one of the big themes of the media in 2018, and I'm sure it will continue in 2019, which is people – grasping for new ideas, how to uh, stop eroding audiences in the case of, of newspapers and TV to some extent, how to build new audiences, attract a, a, a younger demo. Uh, and this is something that you dealt with with regard to the newspaper industry in your book, Return of the Moguls, how Jeff Bezos and John Henry are me- remaking newspapers for the 21st century. Your book came out in March. Looking back on what's transpired since then, um, how's this remaking going? Well, I think that, you know, in the book, the one unalloyed success story was what Jeff Bezos is doing with the Washington Post. And uh, Fred Ryan, the publisher of the Post, recently circulated an end-of-the-year memo uh, saying that the Post is profitable for the third year in a row. Uh, and this is at a time when the Post's journalism is growing. Uh, the Post had 560 full-time reporters, uh, full-time journalists when Bezos bought the Post in 2013, and it's up now somewhere around 800. Uh, so it has certainly worked for the Post. Um, what is it that's worked? What's the secret sauce? 
Well, unfortunately, it's a secret sauce that's not easily replicable. Uh, there's no secret to what's in the sauce, uh, but the Post has been repositioned as a national player. Uh, Bezos correctly gambled that there was room at the top for another high-quality national news organization. Like the Times. It, like the Times. And when you go for that national audience, you can amass a lot of people and convert some of them into paying subscribers. And uh, he's done that both through the excellence of the post-journalism, some really great technology. I mean, it's just a pleasure to use the post on whatever digital device you're on. And frankly, he has been able to leverage the post with Amazon in ways that are not available to other people. What about the Times? How are they holding up? The Times seems to be doing well. They've got around uh, 3 million paid subscribers, I'm sorry, 4 million paid subscribers, uh, of whom about 3 million of those are digital only. Uh, So they seem to be doing pretty well, too. Uh, Through all the years of turmoil and, and budget problems that the Times has had, they have maintained a newsroom of about 1,300 people. And uh, I I think that they're, for the most part, doing an excellent job journalistically. And they seem to be figuring it out on the business side, although I don't think that it, it, they're not in a position to grow, unfortunately, but they've done a good job of being able to hold on. Well, how about the globe? Uh, Looking back on this year, circulation continues to deteriorate, right? Well, no, that's actually not true. Oh, all right. Um, I stand corrected. Well, the Globe has had some limited success in some areas. Uh, When you say the circulation's down, well, the print circulation continues to drop. And uh, that's true industry-wide. And then you uh, add to that the problems that the Globe has had with its new printing plant in Taunton, uh, both in terms of uh, timeliness, quality, uh, delivery reliability. Uh, you know, unfortunately, the Henry era, to some extent, has been marked by some really good and interesting ideas and very poor execution. And I think that the Taunton printing plant uh, stands as a prime example of that. Have they got that worked out? I haven't had a problem with my Globe delivery in a while. Well, it's a lot better. Um, but just the other day, uh, a friend of mine was tweeting that once again, he wasn't getting his Globe delivered. Uh I am a almost entirely digital reader, so it doesn't really affect me. Uh, But they've really rolled the dice on becoming a large paid digital newspaper. And uh, in fact, earlier this year, they hit the 100,000 mark, uh, which had been a longstanding goal that they've had. And uh, they have said that their ultimate goal, I shouldn't say their ultimate goal is because they'd like to keep going, but their ultimate goal is 200,000, which they say at that point, the globe starts to look like a sustainable business. But as my mother always said, the first 100,000 is the easiest. Uh, Here in Boston, I, I, I hope our listeners realize how lucky we are in terms of the proliferation of news options here. Uh, the Herald's struggles and uncertain future notwithstanding. We're one of the few cities in the country that still has two working dailies. Uh, Okay, they they are moving to Braintree, but they're still a Boston daily. 
Uh, I don't know how many other cities in the country have three high-quality all-news radio or mostly news radio operations, WBZ, uh, WGBH, and WBUR. And in just the last few years, we've had an expansion of television news where, you know, Channel 7 lost the NBC affiliation. They started their own local news operation, but 7 has continued and expanded its news coverage. And, you know, obviously, uh, I think most discerning people prefer WBZ news, for obvious reasons, right? I can't, I, I can't let the moment go without saying that. No, but, you can. You, and you're you not can. allowed to disagree with this. No, okay? I, I won't disagree. Okay, I'll right. just sit here. Okay, good, good call. <laughs> but anyway, uh, you know, what is this? Is this sustainable? Is the overall? Is the size of the available pie growing? And if not, who's going to get squeezed out here? Look into your crystal ball, oh, Swami. Well, that's a, that's, that's a good question. And I would add to that um, Commonwealth Magazine, which is a nonprofit uh, that went digital only in 2018, uh, actually breaks interesting local stories on a regular basis. They're very good. Uh, they do a very good job. Uh, Boston Magazine continues to have some uh, interesting stuff. and uh, Boston Online? Uh, uh, is that the name of that website? Oh, Hyper Universal local. Hub. Universal Hub bra- often breaks uh, interesting local they stories. They do. Universal Hub is terrific, and it's just yep. a part-time project uh, done by a guy named Adam Gaffin. So we are very fortunate in Boston to have all these options. Um, you know, it is a growing area, and so I would like to think that um, all of these operations can be sustained. I think that when WGBH Radio uh, started to compete with WBUR Radio, uh, there was a sense that two big nonprofit radio stations were just going to end up um, uh, destroying each other. And I think that instead what we've seen is that they've expanded the market for that kind of high-quality public uh, radio news. And um, I think both stations are doing absolutely terrific work. So it's certainly my hope that uh, everybody's going to be able to survive and thrive. Uh, and uh, But 2019 could be a turning point for a lot of these projects. Well, if journalism does not only survive but thrive in the future, it'll be despite the uh, the, the best efforts of Mark Zuckerberg, Sheryl Sandberg, and Facebook to destroy it. Didn't we learn that this year? Yeah, we really did. Uh, you know, it's funny. You you were mentioned my book, The Return of the Moguls, uh, earlier. A lot of um, my reporting on the post, a few, co- and this goes back a couple of years, was looking into their efforts to partner with Facebook and leverage it as as effectively as they could. And I think here we are on the brink of 2019, and we're seeing news organizations trying to figure out how can we live without Facebook because they're they've proven to be more trouble than they're worth. Uh, unfortunately, more than 90% of all new digital ad spending goes to Facebook and Google, leaving nothing but scraps for news organizations. This, more than anything, has been what's been driving the move toward digital subscriptions. It's just a sense that the advertising's gone, and at least at the moment, it doesn't look like there's any way to get it back. And that's because Mark Zuckerberg and the folks at Google are just hoovering it all up. 
Does that model pay off, though? I mean, it, it, when you say 90% of all digital ads go to Facebook and Google, um, does that, I mean, obviously they're making a ton of money off it, but are the advertisers getting their bang for the buck? Has that been proven? You know, that's a really good question, and I don't have a good answer for that. Uh, one thing I've noticed, and I'm sure you've noticed it too, is that you might buy something online, and you've bought it. You're happy. You've got the, you've got the thing you bought. You're done. And for months, advertisements for that exact same item follow you all over the Internet and all over Facebook. And when I see that... I do wonder, are these advertisers getting their money's worth? It, it seems to me like an awful lot of wasted money, even though advertising on these platforms is quite cheap. Um, I, it, it must have been the, uh, the Pointer Institute or, or maybe the Pew Center, one of the big uh, journalism think tanks, uh, had a recent survey that indicated that uh, – Local TV news continues to be the primary source for people to get their local news. Did that surprise you? Does it surprise me? Uh, yeah, it surprises me to some extent. Um, I would have thought that it would be overwhelmingly digital at this point. Um, we know that newspapers have taken a beating, but uh, digital news consumption, uh, especially on your phone, is uh, going through the roof. And yet, local TV news continues to have a lot of resonance with people. Uh, I think that um, it tends to be an older, older generation that still watches TV. I mean, frankly, uh, people my students' age uh, don't even watch TV, never mind local TV news. Well, my take on that is that when these 20-somethings, uh, young 20-somethings in your classroom graduate and get jobs and get married and buy homes and start having kids, uh, that all of a sudden you know, the couch and the TV loom much, much larger in their lives. Am I, am I just hopelessly mired in the past on that? Or? Yes, you are hopelessly mired in the past. Okay, so what happens when 10 years down the road when they start to grow up? Here's the challenge. They're going to be on their couch. They're going to be looking at a large screen, uh, but it will be the Internet feeding into that. They won't be getting... Uh, broadcast channels. They probably won't even be getting cable channels. So the challenge facing every broadcaster and cable operation out there is to try to figure out how to make this successful transition to uh, internet-only distribution and to find a way to try to stand out from the thousands and thousands of choices that are out there uh, so that uh, today's 20-somethings, tomorrow's 40-somethings, uh, will in fact watch uh, what they're offering as opposed to uh, YouTube videos of cats. And by the way, I happen to like YouTube videos of cats. I prefer dogs, but I, 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 I dig where you're coming from. Uh, Dan Kennedy's book, if you're interested in this topic we've been talking about, is must-reading. It's entitled The Return of the Moguls, How Jeff Bezos and John Henry Are Remaking Newspapers for the 21st Century. And Dan's a journalism professor at Northeastern University. Dan, thanks for joining us on Studio BZ. Thanks a lot, John. I appreciate it. Happy New Year. Same to you. 
Well, parents always think their children are special and unique, but let's face it, some people end up more successful than others. And the question is, why? There is one Harvard professor who says this does not happen by chance. The secret lies within how each child is parented. Professor Ron Ferguson is director of Harvard's Achievement Gap Initiative. And he's co-authored the upcoming new book, The Formula, Unlocking the Secrets to Raising Highly Successful Children. Thank you so much for coming in to talk with us. Good to be here. We appreciate it. So uh, you say that there is a hidden pattern that you have researched among graduates of Harvard and other top schools. What is step one in becoming a master parent? Well, my co-author, Tatcha Robertson, and I find that there's a pattern in the life stories of highly successful people. And we find eight roles repeated in these stories of folks from all kinds of different backgrounds. Uh, race doesn't seem to matter, socioeconomic status, it's the same basic pattern of, of parenting that we see across all these different folks. And in fact, you, you've sort of come up with this formula, if you will. Mm -hmm. That's the name of the book, is the formula. Right, right. These eight roles that parents need to adopt, as many of them as they possibly can, we want to put them up on the screen and actually go through them with you. Right. And you start the first one you call the early learning partner, that that's what you want to be as a parent, right. the eight things you want to be. What is right. that? Yeah, the early learning partner is the parent who spends a lot of time with the child doing things that the child experiences as fun, mm -hmm. but where their learning and their understanding of what life is gets, um, is all about learning. They're used to having little projects of their own, learning mm -hmm. to persist, mm -hmm learning to be fascinated so that by the time they get to kindergarten, that's just what life is they're all about, and they're accustomed to learning with adults. How about the flight engineer? The flight engineer pays close attention to what's happening outside of the house, particularly in school. And so if anything starts to go wrong in school to knock the child's trajectory off path, the parent intervenes quickly to set it right. Then the third role is the fixer. The fixer makes sure that no opportunity is missed because of a lack of resources or for any other reason for that matter. So we had one mother who sold her wedding ring in order to buy a flute that the daughter needed for to be a part of an orchestra she had to be a part of. Who's the revealer? The revealer is the parent who shows the child life's menu, places to go, types of people you can grow up to be, things to be interested in. How about the philosopher? The philosopher, beginning when the child is very young, has serious conversations. They take the child seriously mm -hmm. as a thinker. Um, help the child to find their own ethical compass, to find a sense of purpose, mm -hmm. to make, make good decisions. I was just saying to right. Paula the other day right. that my daughter pointed out right. a crush and said, that's the wise man and baby Jesus. Right. Who is Jesus? And I could have, in, th in theory, just blown the question off or mm -hmm. said, oh, you know, he's some guy. But you're saying, right. no, you have to try to take that question seriously and answer them seriously. You take it seriously. Uh, you allow the child to listen in and even participate in adult conversations. Mm -hmm. You expose them to the realities of the world. Don't sugarcoat right. everything. And, of course, children are always watching, right? right? And you're the model. Right. The model is the adult who carries himself in a way that the child thinks, I want to be like that. And they just see ways of maneuvering and moving through the world that they can emulate. And then the seventh is the negotiator. The negotiator is the parent who teaches the child how to bargain, how to negotiate, how to uh, speak truth to power, mm. but also how to behave, how to carry themselves so that they are respectable and attract the respect of the people whose, whose respect they want. 
And how about the GPS navigational voice? The GPS navigational voice is the parent in a kid's head. <laughs> that voice that, that brings along all those messages that the earlier roles imparted. So that long after the parent is not actively every day there in the child's life, those, uh, those insights. And so to the best of your back. ability, you want to be each of these things. You want to be each of them. And we found... For, all these, for, for the vast majority of people that we focused on, all the roles were there. Mm. And, and that was kind of the discovery, finding that in each case, these parents who had not been taught, right. they were so determined yeah. to be good parents that they figured it out. They had what we call the burn, mm. which typically was based in their own backstory. There was something in their own life story that sure. made them determined to be really good parents. I saw a... Uh, reference on Twitter last week yeah. that really made me think, and it was a pe pediatrician who said to someone, I see two Americas in my office every day, mm -hmm. parents who are controlling screen time mm -hmm. and parents who aren't. Right. How do you see the parental role in clearly exposing children to technology, mm -hmm. but being able to control it at mm -hmm. the appropriate level so that their education doesn't suffer? The best advice I've ever heard on screen time is use it like you would a book for about the same amount of time you would a book mm. with some instructional intent, mm. right? I mean, the roles in the formula are about interacting with your child and paying attention to your child's development. And the screen time ought to fit into that. Well, the book is The Formula, Unlocking the Secrets to Raising Highly Successful Children. Professor Ronald Ferguson, uh, along with Tatcha Robertson, thank you so much for coming in. We really appreciate Thanks it. Thanks for having me. Our newscasters, our editors all work as an efficient, well-coordinated, fact-finding team. Our intrepid producer, Jonathan Case, stumbled upon this article from 1983 December 31st, 1983, so right on the doorstep of 1984, written by Isaac Asimov, the famous uh, writer and biochemistry professor at Boston University. His predictions, he was asked by the star in 1983 to make predictions about the world in 2019. And so here we are, 35 years later. He wrote pretty extensively about what he expected 35 years from then. And we're going to go through some of Asimov's predictions here and... I found Exciting. him to be very, he starts well, very accurate, almost uncanny at times. And then there's some stuff where he falls <laughs> off of it. Um, let's go through some of the first ones. Computerization, he writes, will undoubtedly continued on, continue onward inevitably. Computers have already made themselves essential to the governments of the industrial nations. He expects that to continue. And an essential side product, the mobile computerized object or robot is already flooding into industry and will, in the course of the next generation, penetrate the home. Well, with all due respect to Professor Asimov, a brilliant man, I mean, Jetson's Jetson, reruns were still John, on the air back in 83. you took the words out of my mouth. I mean, I feel cheated. I feel I was promised moving sidewalks by now. Yeah. yeah. And where are yeah. they? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Jim Jetson's hairdo machine. Yeah, but the robot's right. serving anyway, a... Anyway, anyway, go ahead. Go on. Of course, robot has changed industry. It has changed uh, yes. the markets. And, and, and I doubt true. that Asimov was watching the Jetsons. It's true. I doubt that. In He's a little high-minded for yeah. that. Now, this is one, interest, one interesting part where he talks about computerization. And I have a bone to pick with John on this one, actually, because listen to this, John. I think this is speaking right to you. There is bound to be resistance to the march of the computers, but barring a successful Luddite revolution, which does not seem in the cards, the march will continue. 
The growing complexity of society will make it impossible to do without them, except by courting chaos. And those parts of the world that fall behind in this respect will suffer so obviously as a result that their ruling bodies will clamor for computerization as they clamor for weapons. This is how I feel about self-driving cars, John. They're coming and you can't stop it. You can't stop the self-driving car revolution. John would throw a wrench into the works if he could. (laughs) The revolution is coming. Yes. The revolution will not be televised. The revolution will not be brought to you by Apple. It will not be brought to you by Samsung. The revolution will not be televised. The really hip listeners in our audience will understand the cultural <laughs> revolution. Yes, Apple, yes, the Apple yes, yeah, yeah. Got That's right. <laughs> it will not be televised. Well, just for, the, so, for our listeners who don't know, John hates, John hates the idea of the, the self-driving car. car. He worries that uh, it'll be dangerous. Uh, I would say Asim- I'm with Asimov on this, that uh, the Luddite revolution will not be successful. Poor Liam, that he was a great true. guy. I warned him about getting one of those self-driving cars, but did he listen? No. Yes. no. He'll be able to pull up the audio from He's this podcast. When, demise. Yes, we of course. We are sad to report. <laughs> uh, what's next? What's next here? Uh, by the year 2019, uh-huh. we should find that the transition is about over, meaning that the labor issues that are caused by technology, he believed in 1983 would be about over by now. And of course, we have seen that that is not true. <laughs> They're just oh, we beginning. are just beginning. That we are just beginning. Yes. I think in, in a lot of ways, he thought technology was going to move. You'll see through some of these other predictions that was going to move faster than it ended up doing. Um, this 2016 presidential election was largely about globalization and technology and how people who used to be able to work a factory job for 35 years and get a great pension at the end of it no longer can, and that we haven't quite figured out how to deal with that yet. And that has led to stagnating wages and all of this. And he called on a revolution of education, that we had to change public education, start teaching computer literacy and all this. And I think we haven't as a nation, at least in America and other countries have, we have not done a good enough job of- Mm-hmm. Of changing with the times. Yeah. Very regard. good. The digital divide. Yes. Yeah. What else? Significant. He writes, uh, let's see. The consequences of human irresponsibility in terms of waste and pollution will become more apparent and unbearable with time. This is pretty accurate, I would say. Uh, Again, attempts to deal with this will become more strenuous. It is to be hoped that by 2019, advances in technology will place tools in our hands that will help accelerate the process whereby the deterioration of the environment will be reversed. So again, this is one where he was a little too optimistic. He thought technology was going to come along. And by the way, in 1983... There was no climate change denial. In 1983, people understood it. We had the acid rain issue in the 80s that was then dealt with. Climate change denial did really not come along until the late, maybe mid to late 80s. Although I'd say there were always the people who derided the tree huggers. There was always that element. Yes. Don't you think, John? It became much more of a political movement in the mid and late 80s to say the science on this is just wrong. And it came from, of course, the fossil fuel industry, which was concerned about the impact of this As talk of taxation emerged, then the the derision also uh, developed. Did he foresee the Kardashians? (laughs) 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 Dr. Kardashian. John, I don't think think Nostradamus could have foreseen the success of the Kardashians. Warhol, as Jonathan Case points out, Warhol. Did. We're a- 
The 15 minutes. The fi- yeah. it, they've held on a heck of a lot longer than yeah. 15 minutes. Yeah. You know what else I think is interesting? And I wonder if Asimov refers to this at all. The 1982 film Blade Runner is also supposed to be set in 2019. Yeah. And when you look visually at the sort of dystopia Harrison Ford is running through, it's always very dark. There's garbage everywhere, which I suppose is a metaphor for this destruction yeah. of the environment. But I think that... When people talked about computerization, it was also shiny and new in the mm. early 80s. He only sort of talks about the positive aspects right. of it. And the world doesn't look like Blade Runner on the outside, but internally. That's what's happening to human beings right. from well, all of our exposure to computers. Of course, this is what's interesting is that he has a section here in his 1983 article called Destroying Our Minds. And the argument he's making in this section is actually that this, the, the factory jobs that people were doing in the 80s and, and, of course, since the Industrial Revolution were terrible for our minds, that it was all this rote, you know, you're just working on, a, on an assembly line, and that by getting rid of those jobs and moving people over more into design, that we were going to improve the human mind. And, of course, while that might have been true, he did not anticipate the rise of Twitter and Facebook and cell phones and what they would do to our minds that are negative consequences. And just the sheer reality of addiction, of, of smartphone addiction. The one common experience that is really giving me pause and concern, according to my teenage boys, is the way our culture is literally going to be changed because of Fortnite. The addiction to that video game and the number of hours young men are spending playing it. Uh, I have a boy who actually happens to be a camp counselor in the summer where there's no no electronics are allowed. And he said, I can see that that kind of place is going to become more and more essential in childhood, that parents are going to have to send their children to places like this because otherwise when they're at home, it's either social media, the phone, Mm -hmm. these video games like Fortnite. It it is like a disturbing invasion of the internal growth mind of the child. I agree wholeheartedly. Mining the moon is the next uh, step here. And there's the final prediction in Asimov's predictions from 1983. He says, by 2019, we will be back on the moon in force. There will be on it, not Americans only, but an international force of some size and not to collect moon rocks only, but to establish a mining station that will process moon soil and take it to places in space where it can be smelted into metal, ceramics, glass, and concrete. In other words, he kind of envisions the moon as being this place where we can build our factories there and not have to deal with the consequences of the pollutants and all that back here on Earth, and that eventually it will be populated in some way by factory and business, and then beyond that to the other planets. Um, That, of course, has not happened yet. This is, again, a spot where he's too optimistic about the pace of the growth of technology. But I will say we are starting to think about this. We are starting to think about sending a manned mission to Mars, and potentially setting up some sort of community there were it to be the case that Earth is no longer sustainable. And we have Elon Musk to make sure that everything is done by the book and for the benefit of all mankind. (laughs) Oh, thank goodness. Well, in that case, we should be all set. Uh, That's a relief. Our new robber barons who are overseeing our culture. Well, that was 30 years before 
excuse me, 20 years before the Red Sox finally won a World Series. Did he foresee that? <laughs> he did not. Mr. Smarty Pants. He did not see that. He could he not have foreseen Brady and Belichick. He did not either. see the Patriots dynasty. He did not see the, the Red Sox dynasty. But I think he did a pretty good job, Asimov And yet did. it was the son of a BU professor who led the Red Sox to that breakthrough World That's Series. That's right. Theo Epstein, son of Correct. Leslie Epstein. The first of the first the Red Sox. Weird how everything World fits series. together, isn't Everything it? It comes back is. to Boston. <laughs> <laughs> well, that leaves us on an optimistic note, Yeah. Right? There's more in 2019 Should we do our the resolutions? Oh. Do you have a, a New Year's resolution, Paul? I don't Paul? like to do them. No? Do you? I find this to be, uh, this is the thing now where people go, I'm just not going to do a resolution. Well, I think for women, there is so much body shaming involved mm. always with resolutions. Okay. And it's always that you're not good enough. Something needs to be fixed about you. I try to think of affirmations, I guess. Yeah, so what, better, would, what would one of those things be? things that I will do yeah. this year. I, I found it, this was one of the first years. I mm. think this is a growing thing, though, where I ask yeah. people, hey, do you have a New Year's resolution? I don't, yeah. I don't do that. Yeah. I resolve to enjoy life more. Yes, enjoy mm. it more. It's so short. You yeah. know, you lose a loved one like I did this year. Mm-hmm. It, it brings it home. Yeah. And yeah. You, you gained a loved one as well. I sure did. My new granddaughter. I'm gonna just uh, going to do whatever I can to yeah. shirk work <laughs> and enjoy life more. And Except I urge you all podcast. to follow me. No, and if you believe like I do, I want you to go to your window. I want you to open that window. <laughs> and I want you to hey, stick yo, your head out and yell. the top of your lungs. <laughs> finish, finish, please. <laughs> um, no, yeah, I think that's a very good way of thinking about a year ahead. That you're going to enjoy life more. And wouldn't it be great if people focused on, instead of, I have to brutally exercise or lose weight, or just to think more positively about themselves and about life. Yeah, just, you know... Exercise because you want to feel better. Right, because it's good for you. Not because you necessarily think that it will make you look better. Yeah. Um, I resolved – this is so specific and weird, but uh, (laughs) I resolved to bring dinner to work more often. Oh, yes. This is a Because, yeah, I told you this one a while ago because I – we work nights here and so often we have to order out for food. And David Wade and I are always out trying to grab food and it's expensive. The food's not as good for you. So I resolved to bring – Dinner. Well, I hope you're going to bring enough to share with the entire class. <laughs> In that case, I wouldn't save money, John. Uh, I like that one. No, no. So, uh, yeah, that, uh, that is my New Year's resolution. That's good. See, and that'll just make you feel better. Exactly. In every way. Yeah, except the work of preparing the food. <laughs> but you've got to learn to enjoy that work. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, with the little kids running around. There that's you the, that's the big thing. Is the, the big thing is to get the kids running around all the time. You know I what? Give the kids sharp knives. <laughs> help them cook. That have you seen Nothing them. quiets a kid like a oh, sharp so object true. to play with. Have you with. seen that five-second video of the just classic little toddler boy with a look of just sheer glee, and he's running by, and the mother says, what do you have? And he goes, a knife. <laughs> and she goes, no. And she goes running after him. Yeah. Goes, Perfect. That's, that is my household yes. almost every day. That's the enduring image of 2019. Right. And we're only two days in. <laughs> oh, so listen. Give us a rating and a review. Stick with us on Studio BZ. We promise you a year of fascinating interviews. Great conversation. Subscribe and share. The Twitter is at Studio BZ Pod. And I'm at Paula Eben WBZ. And it's really important that you subscribe and let us know how you're feeling. Because so, we know there are so many podcasts. 
podcasts out there. It's oh, kind of so overpopulated, saturated right now, but, but ours is really good. Ours is really good. Consistently really good. The best, the best, I would say, in fact. So, yes, at Studio BZ Pod, go If you like this episode, go subscribe. My handle is at LiamWBZ. And I'm at Keller at Large. And look, tell a friend. That's probably the single best way to spread the word. Tell a friend. You wouldn't believe these fill in the blanks. <laughs> and WBZ, they talk, they talk to people, they talk to each other, and uh, it's worth your it's worth your time. Yeah, and until uh, we've been, next is going to be season three, episode two. Until then, we'll, we'll be, be seeing you. you, and that lives on. And Eternally that makes me happy. <laughs>